Would you take your Bibles and open to the eighth chapter of Romans, please? Last week we looked at the 18th verse and a few additional statements in verses 19 down through verse 25. We're going to continue today, primarily in verses 20, 19, 20, 21, and 22, as we look at this greatest of letters ever penned. But here's a quick reminder. This won't be printed on, your, on the screen here, but verse 18 really sets the context Here's what Paul does here and so often does is that he begins with the conclusion. That's what he does in verse 18. And then he works out the reasoning and validation of that conclusion in the verses that follow. So verses 18 to 25 is a unit of thought that begins with a conclusion in verse 18 and then is explained and reasoned out logically, profoundly in the verses that follow. So here is the opening conclusion. And even the verbiage identifies it as his conclusion because he opens by saying, for I consider, I, I have a conclusion that I have arrived at and it's not just an arbitrary conclusion, it is something I have considered. It is something I have thought through. It is a logical progression of truth. And here is that conclusion For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's Paul's point. We talked about this last week. Paul's point in verse 18 is that our suffering, the suffering that we endure in this life should not overwhelm us, should not defeat us, Because we know about the greatness of the glory that is coming. That's his point. That the suffering compared to the glory is absolutely inconsequential. And we talked about a variety of ways that make it so last week. But don't miss the idea here kind of the the strong implication, which is this. The key to surviving the sufferings and walking through them in victory, the struggles and the trials and the pain and the heartaches and the temptations and the difficulties of this life, the key to walking through them in victory is to know something about the glory that is coming. That's the whole concept 
of what he is driving at in verse 18. And verses 19 to 25, he just further expounds upon that idea right there. So this morning, here's what we're after. This morning and really next Sunday and probably the third Sunday after that. What we are after is to understand, to grasp to the best of our finite capacities something about the infinite greatness of the glory that is to come because that is what is going to sustain us in the day-to-day. That's Paul's logic. That's what he considers and what he sets forth here. So here's what I want to look at this morning. How does Paul develop this truth? In verses 19, 20, 21, possibly in 22 if we get there this morning, how does Paul unfold this truth that validates what he has said in verse 18. Here's what he tells us in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We looked at that in part last week. Talked about what that word means, eagerly longing, that anticipatory posture that creation is looking, standing on tiptoe, peering into the future at the distant horizon, longing, waiting, eager for something to happen. And what is it longing for? It's longing for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. Why? Why is it longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Why is it longing for a better day? Here's why. And Paul is going to explain that. Because something happened to it. Because something happened to it. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation is longing for future glory because it is in such a deplorable condition in the present. The longing is birthed by the pain and the reality of what is now, causing it to eagerly long for something that is to come. So we're going to follow Paul's unfolding here by asking and answering several questions. Doing this to try to get at the heart of what he is saying. And as we go through these, they will set the stage for us to arrive at some very critical conclusions, deductions. So listen carefully and those deductions, I believe, will make profound sense when we get to the end. So here's the first question. 
And we've got to understand this in order to interpret the passage correctly. What is meant by the term creation? I just mentioned this in one sentence uh, last Sunday, but I didn't, I didn't validate or back it up or explain it. I want to do that. What is meant by the term creation? And notice here that Paul uses the term repeatedly. Verse 19, for the creation, verse 20, for the creation, verse 21, that the creation, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, verse 23, and not only the creation. If we're going to understand and interpret what he's saying here, we've got to get that understanding about what is encompassed in the term creation right or we'll misuse the passage. It's so prevalent. So what is meant by the term? We're going to work at that understanding by a process of elimination. Taking our conclusions right out of the text. First of all, does the term include angels? When Paul repeatedly refers to the creation here, is he including the heavenly rational beings, angels. God certainly created them, right? They're not eternal. They're created beings. Now, in order to answer the question on whether they are included, we need to see what Paul said about creation in these verses and then try to line it up with what we know about angels and see if it lines up. If it doesn't, we need to arrive at the conclusion that he's not including angels. If it does line up, then we can include them in the encompassment of this term. First of all, Paul says this about creation down through these verses. He says that the creation was subjected to futility. And secondly, that it is in bondage to corruption. In the Two verses that follow. He makes those statements about the creation that he is repeatedly referring to, that it is subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption. Are either of those true about God's holy angels? And the answer is they are not. They are not subjected to futility, and they are certainly not in bondage to corruption. So this term creation cannot include God's angels. Secondly, does the term include Satan and the fallen angels, his demons? Well, what else does Paul say about creation? Let's see if it would line up with what we know about Satan and his henchmen. Paul said that the creation is, quote, verse 19 eagerly longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Is Satan and his demons eagerly longing for the sons of God to be revealed? (laughs) No. Satan and his henchmen hate the sons and the daughters of God. He certainly is not longing for that great 
consummation, that final day when they're going to be revealed in glory because at that moment it is going to be his eternal demise when judgment is handed out upon him and his demons. So this cannot include in the term creation Satan and his demons. Next, does the term include the sons and the daughters of God? And it's fairly easy to see from verse 23 that it cannot include the sons and the daughters of God because in verse 23, he says, and not only the creation, but something else, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he is explicitly stating here that the term he is using for creation does not include the sons, the children, the daughters of God. Fourthly, does the term include the unsaved world, the unbelieving world of humanity? Well, here's the question. Is unsaved, unredeemed humanity eagerly longing for the final day? No, they are not. They are not. They fear death and what follows death. They do not see death as the doorway to victory. They see it as something unknown, something uncertain. And I believe that inherent within their God-given consciousness, there is the idea of an impending judgment, but they certainly are not looking and longing for that day. So, through a process of elimination, all of the rational thinking beings of creation are excluded from the term creation. So then what is left? What is left is the material world, the animate and inanimate world, the unreasoning part of God's creation, meaning the animal world. The plants and the trees and the vegetation and the flowers and the weeds and the thorns and the briars the mountains and the lakes, the rivers and the streams, the earth, the planets, the stars in the sky, all of that unreasoning, animate and inanimate material world. That is what Paul is referring to when he says multiple times, the creation, the creation, the creation. Next question, what is the creation doing? It's longing. It's eagerly waiting and anticipating and looking for. It's standing on its tiptoes. It's, he's personifying this material world, picturing it, fixating on a point in the future, on the horizon of history, looking for Something that is to come. Doing so with great and fervent anticipation. And why 
is it doing that? Next question, why is it eagerly longing for this culmination in the future? Because something happened to it. And what happened? Verse 19, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Two statements made about creation, that it is subjected to futility and that it is in bondage to corruption. Let's just look at those each for a moment. First of all, subjected to futility. Paul is telling us here that the material world is in a futile condition. That means that it is not accomplishing that for which it was created. It is not doing that for which it was designed. It is not performing that thing for which God brought it forth to perform. It is broken. It is weak. It is futile. But not only that, it's in bondage to corruption. Corruption. Deterioration. Brokenness. And what about it? It's in bondage to it, meaning it cannot free itself from that. It is hopelessly linked to that corruption and cannot do anything to remove itself from that condition. That's why it's longing. Next question, how did creation become futile and bound to corruption? What is it that happened? This is very foundational, very academic, maybe for many of you, simplistic, yet it is profound that you understand it and the why behind it. How did creation become futile? and bound to corruption. God, the creator, made the world that he created subject to futility. God, the creator, bound the material world to corruption. That's what Paul tells us in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not by something that it did, not because of an error or a sin that it performed, but because of him who subjected it. And who did that? It was God that did that. God, the Creator, to this world that he created, and when he created it, he said, it is good at each point of creation. It is good, it is good, and at the conclusion, it is very good. But then, at some point, he did something. He subjected that creation 
to futility and bound it over to corruption. So here's the next obvious question then, why? Why did God impose futility and corruption on his good creation? And the answer is because of man's rebellion and sin. The verb subjected in the Greek is in the aorist tense. Here's what that means. It means that that action of God in subjecting the creation to futility and binding it over to, con- to corruption, that it was done at a definitive moment in history. An action that was done once, not to be repeated, was done comprehensively and completed, decisive in a moment of time. You see, at one point, it was not corrupt and it was not futile. At one point, it was doing exactly what God created it to do. At one point, it was all life and new life, no deterioration, no corruption, no decay. But then at one moment in history, at one point in time, Because of the sin of one man, a curse came and God acted judicially and upon his material world, he placed a curse. A curse that made his created world futile and bound it over to corruption. So the next question, obviously, is this. When did that happen? When did that happen? Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. This is... The story in the garden, in the paradise of God in which he created for Adam and Eve and placed them in as co-regents to rule over as lords. But then came the rebellion of sin where they acted according to their own will against the will of God And God handed out his judgment. And in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, listen to the moment in time that creation in the errorist tense, that decisive moment in history when God judicially acted and brought futility and corruption over his very good creation. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. There it is. Judicial action of God. A decisive decision handed out and enforced 
placed upon the material world that had done nothing wrong but was now being cursed because of the action of its Lord, its regent. Cursed is the ground, Adam, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. Did you know that there was no thorns and thistles before the fall? There was no weeds. There was no briars. And you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's material creation, that unreasoning part of the material world was cursed as the result of Adam's sin. That was the moment in time when everything radically changed. Not just for mankind, but for the world created for mankind. Prior to the fall, Man did not need to fight back the weeds that continually sought to overrun the soil. There were none. Man did not have to labor to produce a fertile environment in the soil. It happened on its own because there was no corruption. The produce was produced in profusion effortlessly. There were no harmful rays to threaten, no storms to wreak havoc. What of the animal world? Have you ever thought about this? What of the animal world? There was no animosity, no tension, no fear between man and the beasts of the field. But now following the fall, that is, seems to be the constant reality, hostility between the beast and mankind. What about beast to beast? There was no turmoil, only peace before the fall. At the curse the predatory instinct was birthed and the food chain came into being so that there became predator and prey, violence. And what of mankind? Here, the fall dealt its deadliest blow. The divine image in mankind was wrecked. And all of his nature was tarnished, corrupted, and bound to that corruption hopelessly. 
But unlike the material, non-reasoning world, it was not unwillingly, it was willingly because man had acted by his choice to rebel. And so the curse came. Now what is the purpose of setting down that foundation of truth that may seem so academic, so simplistic? Well, I'm an, there's, a, there's several reasons why. One is, is because that truth is being brought into question even within the precincts of the church today. And there is something... substantial at stake when that takes place. We'll get to that. You see, the only place, the only place where you have the answer for the condition of the world in its current deplorable state is on the pages of of Scripture, and primarily in the book of Genesis at our very beginning that described what happened and why it happened and what God did because of what happened. That is the only place in the world where you have the answer that makes sense of what we see day in and day out. I told you that we were going to work out Paul's logical thought here with a series of questions, and then when we finished those, we were going to draw some logical conclusions. Let me do that now. Based upon that unfolding truth that we just looked at, these conclusions, these deductions, we can arrive at them by reason and revelation based upon the history of the curse. Number one, please write this down either on paper or mentally in your mind and inscribe it on your heart. It is a lesson everyone in this room needs to grow in. For sure that is true of me. And the conclusion is this. All sin is abhorrent. Process that for a minute. All sin is abhorrent. There are sins that are abhorrent to us. Sins that shock us and turn our stomach and cause our righteous indignation to rise and our tempers to boil. But there are so many other sins that are seen merely as minor infractions. But if we can draw any 
reasonable conclusion from the story of the genesis of creation and its demise. It is this, all sin is abhorrent. Would you call Adam's sin abhorrent? The eating of the fruit of the tree that he wasn't supposed to eat from? Was, is that something, the eating of a fruit that would, you would place in one of those categories of this gross, abhorrent, horrific sin that would turn your stomach today? See, the reality is this. All sin springs from the very same root. That means this, it is all abhorrent. It is all against the holiness of God. And until we understand that, we are not going to see our world correctly and our place in it. Certainly, the message of the first chapters of Genesis and what follows and the truth of what Paul is proclaiming here about God subjecting creation at a moment in time, referring to the fall, subjecting it to absolute futility and putting it in bondage to complete corruption because of that one sin of Adam is to teach us that sin in its very nature, all sin is absolutely and completely abhorrent. I'm not sure of the best way. I think that there are many ways. The best way to drive that truth, not just into our intellect, but really so that we embrace it and understand it in the depths of our being and live it out in the actions of our life. There are many ways that we can do that. Revelation is going to have to bring that truth to you. The revelation of God's Word is going to have to bring that to you. Uh, Revelation of God's glory and His holiness so that you see how in contrast to God's holiness, sin is will help describe and bring to your understanding how black, how ugly, how horrific, how abhorrent sin is. But the message here is clear that all sin is abhorrent. The sins that turn our stomach and the ones that excite us, they're all abhorrent, springing from the same root. They are all a gross attack against the very holiness of our good God. How can we be constantly reminded of that? Keep this in your minds. Every time you see the futility of the world, an illustration of it, Every time that you see the fact that all creation is bound to corruption, 
to brokenness, to decay, to deterioration. Every time that you hear about wars and rumors of wars, every time that you encounter the tempest and the storm, every time that you see the weed and the thorn, every time that you see turmoil instead of peace, let it remind you that all of sin is abhorrent because it was one sin that brought that curse upon the created material world and upon you and me. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. that what we are to learn to do and to grow in as Christians is that we are to be developing an abhorrence for all things sinful and be developing an appetite and desire for all things good. We're to be progressing and growing in that reality. That, Paul says, is the mark of a genuine love for God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Here's the second conclusion, truth that we can arrive at based upon what we have looked at, and it's this. That creation's condition and destiny is linked inseparably to the condition and destiny of the sons and daughters of God. Do you see that in the story? You cannot separate them. God created man and appointed him Lord over his creation. He made Adam and Eve co-regents on the earth, existing in a perfect condition, dwelling in a perfect paradise. But Adam's sin brought the curse upon creation. God the Creator determined that there is an inseparable link between mankind created in His image and the world He created for mankind and made mankind to rule over. God said, there is a connection there. And as goes mankind, so goes the world. So goes the creation. Inseparable link. When mankind fell, creation fell with him. Historical account in Genesis proves that. 
And that is precisely, listen, that is precisely what Paul is saying in verse 19 when he writes that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Why is creation waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the moment when the sons and the daughters of God will come into glory? Why? Because creation knows that its destiny is linked to the destiny of the sons and the daughters of God. So when the sons and the daughters of God are glorified, so it will follow. It will be glorified. They are inseparably linked together. That truth is at the very genesis of creation and is going to continue to be a truth throughout the endless ages of eternity. Verse 21, Paul says it even more explicitly. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, creation is going to obtain because the sons and daughters of God are going to obtain. Linked together, inseparable. That's why creation is longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God because it knows when they are revealed in glory that it will get its restoration. Third deduction. Listen carefully. We can conclude from this that the theory of evolution is empty of answers and hope. That the theory of evolution is empty of answers and hope. First of all, empty of answers. You know what evolution postulates. Now remember, this is creeping in to the church desire to marry the account of creation with the evidence of, quote, evidence of the scientific world that it calls evolution that is really a theory. Here's what evolution, you know this, you've studied it in school. It postulates this. It postulates that the advance of creation, the upward progression of creation of this world and of mankind. That that progression, given time, will continually arrive at new heights. And if you carry that out, if you walk down that path long enough, it's going to arrive at a place of perfection and all ills will be solved. All Turmoil will cease. All problems will end because it is evolving. It is moving toward a better place. But what does the verifiable empirical evidence of true science tell us? Let me give it to you in a 
central pillar of truth that science holds on to, and that is the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics, or the law of entropy, says this. And it's a scientific law. It's truly observable and repeatable all the time, all around us. And that law is this, that all things deteriorate. They don't progress. They break down. They don't come together. They move toward chaos, not toward order. You know what that is? That's the bondage to corruption. Genesis has the answer to what science now calls the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. It's because a curse was placed by the Creator upon His creation because of the rebellion of man in His sin. Things move from function to dysfunction. The car, the new car breaks down. The new body wastes away. Life moves toward death always. Death doesn't move toward life. Life moves toward death. It is so reasonable, so proven, so demonstrated moment by moment all around us. How does that square with what evolution postulates in its theory. You see, it has no answers for us. And secondly, it has no hope for us. It's empty of hope. All of history has shown us that we're not getting better, we're getting worse. I would say that right now, the illustrations of that truth are so rampant. We have the ability to access information about what is going on around the globe and what do we see from that information. Just take one snapshot of Egypt. What do you see in Egypt? Anarchy. Anarchy. Turmoil. Corruption, deterioration of a society, brokenness abounds, pain is prolific, evil is advancing. Things are not evolving to a better state, they are in constant demise and deterioration. So the theory of evolution is empty of answers and hope. Number four, our bright hope is secure in God's promises alone. Our bright hope is secure in God's promises alone. Listen again to verse 20. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, comma, in hope. Do you see what Paul is writing there? When God cursed the earth in the moment that God cursed the earth right there at the genesis of time and the curse, God also communicated to the material world that it's not always going to be this way. There's a better day coming. This subjection to futility, this bondage to corruption is a temporary state. Restoration, complete restoration is going to happen. Here's the incredible truth. I saw this just this morning for the first time. You see, the promise is given in Genesis chapter 3 about that restoration, about God restoring things into balance as he intended and created initially. And I want you to see where that promise is at. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as he is speaking to the serpent, Satan giving his judgment in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is the offspring of the woman It's talking about a man that's going to come and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will that man do? Verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That the man that is going to come, the seed of woman that is going to come is going to defeat you. He's going to inflict upon you a head wound, a fatal wound. But then watch this. Then the curse upon the creation comes in verse 17, 18, and 19. The promise came before the curse. Before the curse was even handed out, there was a message of hope given by the Creator to His creation so that when He subjected the creation to futility and put it in bondage to corruption, He did so in the hope of the promise He had given two verses earlier. Oh, if that doesn't show us the omniscience of God, I'm not sure what would. One author describes the coming glory of the new creation like this. Very aptly describes. Our freedom and our glory as sons and daughters of God will be so great that only a glorified world will be adequate to suit our almost infinite capacities for happiness. Why does there need to be a new earth, 
a new heavens and a new earth, one that is enjoying the freedom of the glory of the sons and daughters of God because that is the only kind of dwelling that will be compatible to our glorified state so that we can operate in that glorified state to the capacity with which that state will give us an almost infinite capacity for happiness. We look at this world and we are still amazed at its beauty and intricacy. But what must it be like on the day when it is restored and glorified with the sons and the daughters of God? That brings us then full circle back to verse 18. Where Paul beginning with his conclusion, says this, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. That the present sufferings, if you were to put them, here's what he's saying, if you were to put them on a scale, a balancing scale and the sufferings of this world on one side and the weight of the glory. That's the idea that's included in the word glory. It includes the idea of weight. He said if you were to put those on the scale that the suffering side would have absolutely no weight whatsoever in any degree to the immeasurable weight that's on the side of glory, the glory that is to come for you and me. They are incomparable. So then here is Paul's conclusion. If we look at the glory that is coming, we should be able to walk through whatever happens in this world, on this earth, these present sufferings in view of what is coming and walk through them with victory, not defeat. Walk through them with joy, not hopelessness. Because they are inconsequential compared to what's coming. That is the entire reasoning and logic of Paul here. So what do you need to know? You need to understand the truth about the glory that is coming so that you can walk through the present sufferings in victory. And in order to understand that truth, you need to know what the condition is now, how it got that way, and what will be in the future. Would you please stand Remember those conclusions, those deductions. The first one being, we need to understand the abhorrent nature of sin. Do you need a deeper revelation and understanding of that? I do. I want to pray that request over this body. Maybe 
you want to pray that for yourself. Encouraging you to come to the altars if you can do that and ask God to show you compared to His glory that all sin is abhorrent, that all sin comes from the same root so that we can learn to live out a sincere love that abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. Father, I pray that your revelation, that the working of your Holy Spirit would do just that. I can't accomplish that in the hearers here. I can't even accomplish that in my own life. What I need is for your revelation, your truth to birth and grow that understanding. And I pray that that would happen in my own life and in the minds and the hearts of those that are in this room this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen.